Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. With us today is Michael Bungay-Stanier. Michael is a friend of mine. I've known him for a little while, and it's been – I'm richer for it. He's an interesting – Not literally richer. Not not literally. Metaphorically richer. (laughs) I'm metaphorically richer for it. Uh, He is really taking coaching to a new level. His book, The Coaching Habit – uh, sold over 700,000 copies, has 1,000, more than 1,000 five-star reviews on Amazon, and he is named a number one thought leader in coaching by the Thinkers 50. So uh, he comes well-credentialed. Also, he uh, introduced himself when he was three as, hi, my name is Michael. I can hop. Do you want to see me hop? So, Michael, while we're here, I, I don't really want to take you out of that space at all. Can we see you hop? Yeah, exactly. I love hop. I mean, I'd like you know, to see you hop. In many ways. I mean, I always think that I'm like that is how I used to go up to strangers in supermarkets, according to my mum, and introduce myself. And you know, things have shifted a little bit, but not a whole lot, because in some ways, the purpose of getting out there and sharing ideas and going, "Here's how I see the world," is a little bit. Hey, I'm Michael. I'm now a 51 year old man, but I can hop. <laughs> watch me hop. Somebody please watch me hop. It's actually, in some ways, the most uh, true and real thing that we do is just to be clear and uncensored about it and say, see me, see me. Like, I'm hoping I can help you and serve you, but you've got to notice me first. Right, so that's, I love that. That's one of the ways we know each other. Like, I remember coming across your writing in HBR when you used to write all the time for them and going, and who is this guy? And then following up with your books. And, you know, we've probably known each other probably closing in on 10 years now. Yeah. And we're both metaphorically richer for it. Exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, his... Literally poorer for it. Because right. we hosted a few parties that I've come to, which have been fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, you're literally out of pocket. I'm literally poorer so, for sorry it. Sorry about that. <laughs> Michael's newest book is The Advice Trap. Be humble, stay curious, and change the way you lead forever. So we're here to to speak with you about that. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm excited to be here. I, you know, sometimes podcasts feel like you're being interviewed by somebody who doesn't quite get what you're up about, but you're like a useful guest for them. But (laughs) what I hope, what I hope the conversation for us is because we both think about and play in the same world. It's like us just having a chat about the stuff we care about, the stuff that we see influencing how people show up to live a better life, to lead others. And I'm curious to know what what we end up talking about. So let's start actually with the book and your main premise of the book, which, you know, I loved the book and I violate its uh, its its recommendation all the time. Um, I give advice uh, when I'm coaching, yeah. and I actually don't think it's a bad thing. And and uh, I want to share a story, which is that I was. Uh, with my family on vacation and I was eavesdropping on a conversation at a table next to us. And it was a woman who worked at Google, I found out, and who had been assigned a coach. And she said to me, she said to her friends, I thought it was to me because I was listening, but she wasn't talking to me. So I know her friends. And she said, yeah, I got a coach at Google, which is why I started eavesdropping. And she said, I thought it was going to be really terrible, but it turned out it was great. 
And so then I, you know, they weren't really talking more about it, but I jumped in and I said, look, I'm eavesdropping. I wish I could say I'm sorry, but I'm kind of interested. So I'm not that sorry, but I'm eavesdropping. And I would love to ask you what you were expecting the coach to do and what the coach actually did that made you change your mind. And she said, look, I, I'm smart. I'm very capable. What I thought the coach was just going to do is ask me a bunch of questions about stuff I had already thought about and that it would be a waste of my time. And what in fact this coach did was yes, asked me a bunch of questions, but actually gave me some advice because it was in her area of expertise and it was actually very useful advice. And I found the coaching to be much more helpful as a result. And that um, coincides with my experience coaching, which is I'm coaching CEOs and leadership teams. And in yeah. areas I don't know about, I don't give advice, but in areas I know about, I, uh, they want my advice and I give them the advice. Yeah. So here's, that was a long introduction to say, why is advice giving so bad? It's actually not. It's not actually not. Like we all give advice and there's a really good place for giving advice. So one of the things that you don't want to take away from the book is this idea that, hey, giving advice is bad. You know, the definition I use when I talk about coaching is, and it's kind of behavior-based, can you slow down the rush to give advice and move to action? Can you stay curious a little bit longer? And what you're looking to do is you're looking to break the default habit most of us have of if somebody is talking, my job is to have an answer and supply that answer and supply that insight and that solution and that piece of advice and give that to them. So what we're looking is we're looking to change a pattern of behavior and to recognize that there is often an incredibly valuable moment where you give advice. Because if I had to put money on it, that coach, the coach who was coaching the Google woman there, right. my bet is that she didn't just launch into advice as soon as she started talking. They had a conversation. She asked some questions. She got the Google person to go, here's what I do know. Here's what I do understand. Here's the insights I already have. And then on top of that conversation, went, well, that's brilliant. Let me give you some additional thoughts or advice on top of that. Who can I can help you out with that. Great. So it's not giving advice as the first move. The first move is asking a bunch of questions, understanding the situations, and then to the extent that it's useful, sharing advice in your area of expertise. And, you know, there is a, it's one of those, is it a science, is it an art? I think it's often an art to go, look, there are some times when giving advice even if you've got the right advice, still isn't the right thing to do. And sometimes this depends on the power relationship you have. Like when you're a coach, you're there to say, look, I've got a bigger picture that I'm trying to serve this client to have a good life, to achieve the goals that they want. Right. And I'm going to do that through a combination of a little bit of love and a little bit of a push, a little bit of curiosity and driving them to generate their own insights and a little bit of my own advice. That's actually a little bit different, potentially, if you're a team leader. Like if I'm leading you as a, as a team member, Peter, we're having a conversation and you're like, here's what I'm struggling with. And I go, okay, so what's the challenge here for you, Peter? And you're like, blah, blah, blah. And what do you want? And you're like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And you come up with a solution. And I'm thinking to myself, it's not, it's not a bad solution. Do I have a better solution because I'm older and wiser and better looking than Peter? Well, possibly, I possibly do. But now on balance, what's most important here? The sense of insight, the sense of enablement, the sense of empowerment that this person has to deliver a solution that's probably good enough 
Or should I go, I've got, an, I've got a solution that's 4% better, and in giving that solution that may be 4% better, it's less likely to be implemented, it's disempowering, it takes ownership back to me, it raises my status, that means lowering their status. Part of it is about weighing up the, the prizes and punishments. You know, Peter, you and I are both members of this, this collective, this group called the Marshall Goldsmith 100. Right, you it's know, a cabal. Kind of, it's a cabal. It's a secret society. I mean, you can't say any more about it. It's a it's a secret society with a website. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> with all the members listed on the website, clearly. <laughs> but, um, you know, one of our spiritual members of the uh, Marshall Goldsmith 100 is Alan Mulally, the right. former CEO of Ford, who, you know, famously first CEO that wasn't a Ford family member, came in when they were losing, I don't know what it was, like a billion dollars every 35 minutes or so. And when you hear him talk about how he managed his leadership team, which was in disarray because they were losing all this money, but nobody could confess to anything that was going wrong. So everyone's like, no, everything's good in my part of the business. Finally, somebody goes, ah, this is a struggle for me. This is difficult. This is broken. Even in that moment, and holy cow, if ever the force is strong to go, I think I've got a solution because you're costing me, this, the company, this money, and you might be costing me my job. Alan Milani was like, my job was never to give the solution. My job was always to open the space and allow them to find their own solution. So just to say, there's a time and a place and a type of relationship where advice is really powerful. Right. All I want you to do to everybody listening is to say, look, slow down, to slow down the rush to advice giving. See what happens if you stay curious a little bit longer. See how that changes and involves the relationship you have. And and it also, I guess, depends on the person you're giving the advice to, meaning some people will would love to let go of the accountability of execution because it's your idea. So, you know, like yeah. you, it was your advice, your idea, tried it, didn't work. Uh, you have any other ideas? And, yeah, exactly. and now I've sort of removed myself out of the picture. And then there's other people who you might be coaching who are, uh, you know, who are actually, you know, have uh, really own the problem and want your perspective so that it could exactly. shed light on it for them. And I guess those people, it's, you know, we could be more liberal in sharing our advice because it's not taking oh. away from their accountability. Yeah. And then there's context. I mean, here's a, a very specific tactic I use in my leadership and my coaching as well. When somebody comes up to me and goes, hey, Michael, how do I do insert thing? And when people ask you that question, because we've all been asked that question, you can feel every fiber of your being leaning forward going, this is amazing. They literally asked me how to do this. It would be wrong. It would be churlish. It would be irresponsible not to give them the answer. So you're kind of in this colluded, collusion of a conversation where you're like, no, you tell me what you want to tell me and I'll pretend to listen to what you're telling me. And Here's what I say. I've got a script so people can just write down the script and use it and practice it and make it into a habit. Peter's coming to me and going, Michael, how do I do the thing? And I go, Peter, I've got some ideas on how to do the thing. They're good ideas, and I promise you that I will share them with you. But before I tell you how I would approach doing the thing, how would you do the thing? What are your first ideas? What's, the, what's one idea that you've got? And Peter goes, oh, actually, I've got an idea. It's blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, brilliant. I like it, Peter. Good one. What else could you do? And then what else could you do? And is there anything else you could do? And this is great, Peter. Is there anything else? And then at the end of that, after Peter's generated his own ideas and insights and thoughts, and there's always going to be some, 
I've got, I like all of these. Look, I've got one other thought that I just add to your really good list. And here's my idea or my thought around that. So one of the things But I don't necessarily about, know that my idea is any better than any of your ideas. I, exactly. So if particularly this is a power thing. If you're a senior, if you're a boss, if you're a leader, you know what happens when the boss gives their suggestion. Everybody goes, that's a brilliant idea, boss. I'm writing it down. I think we should do your idea. I, uh, so, I, was, I was having a conversation with a CFO of an organization, a new CFO of a very large organization. And we were talking about this very thing. And he said, and I was talking to him about his power. And he said, you know, you're 100% right. He said, I made this offhanded comment in an elevator when someone said something to me. And I said, yeah, that'd be kind of interesting to understand that better. What I didn't mean to happen was for a team of 10 people to spend three weeks exploring the idea, right, which exactly. is what ended up happening. And right. yeah, it's, we, it's, we built, we built the submarine that you've requested. Right. Like, what? <laughs> what submarine? I didn't even, oh, the, oh, no, that was, ah, what happened here? You're like, yeah. You know, I heard somebody say, you know, it was a, it was some senior leader in the military maybe an admiral going, yeah, all of my offhand remarks, they're orders. Right. So right. it's just that piece around recognizing your power right. and going, look, how, how do I serve people best? Let me ask you a question that's a very different kind of question. Um, and it kind of takes us out of the corporate arena, but, but it could also be in the corporate arena, which is what about when we see someone struggling and we really want to help them? Yeah. And they haven't asked for our help. And I could think about it in terms of anything from a colleague who's struggling with a client, for example, or it could be a family member, like someone uh, wants to eat better or stop smoking or something, you know, and, and you're watching it happen and you think to yourself, ah, I could really help this person. Like if you really want to lose weight, maybe eating that chocolate mousse right now is not the best move. But, and right. so you kind of want to give them the advice, but we all know that that's how blow up fights happen and that that doesn't really work. Actually. So what do we do in a situation where we see something that's happening that we know is self-destructive to someone else? We know, yeah. and we know it because they've stated what they want and they're doing things that are not, that are not moving them towards that. We also know asking the question like, do you really want to eat that? Or do you really want to make that phone call? That that's just going to piss them off even more. So what's yeah. the best way without giving advice to engage that person and to support them in making the change that they have said they want to make? My suggestion is you take a taser, you walk up to them, you zap them, throw them in a cupboard, lock them in a cupboard for three to five days and then let them out, and everybody has calmed down after that. You Great. Know, yeah. I you, mean, should, you, should seek, uh, you should speak to medical professionals before following that advice, though, right? Yeah, possibly. <laughs> possibly realize that that's not serious advice. Um, it's, it's hard, isn't it? It's really hard. I mean, there's entire industries built up around the process of how do you support people who are struggling? You know, you, you have be kind of extreme about it or somewhat extreme. We have an alcoholic in the family or in the relationship. What do you do that actually helps them? What do you do that actually enables them right. and continues the dysfunctional relationship? So um, I don't have an easy answer here. I don't think there is an easy answer here. I think, and I don't think there's generic advice here either. Um, I think it's something to wrestle with in the moment. And what doesn't work is a, a kind of uninvited, unappreciated, uncontracted for uh, intervention. I'm eating the chocolate mousse. Peter comes up to me and goes, Michael, 
Look, we, we, we haven't spoken for a while, but I'm noticing you're looking a little chubby and you really want to be eating that chocolate mousse. The answer is yes, I'm now fully invested in eating this chocolate mousse and I think I will order a second chocolate mousse just because I need to make a point with Peter. But there's a way to say, look, if you're there and you're on somebody's side, how do you contract, socially contract with them in a way to say, let's have a conversation about how I can support you in the work that you want to do? I'm thinking of a, a, a relationship at the moment actually with my wife and she had the blood test, had high cholesterol and uh, was like, okay, I'm going to change the way I eat and I'm going to stop drinking for a period of time as part of that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, this is great. And how do I support you in this? So we had this conversation, which is like, so when we have that moment where we're both like, I could murder a bottle of wine right now. How do we have that conversation and how do we hold each other accountable and how do we support each other not going, well, I'll have the wine if you have the wine. And I go, well, I'll have the wine as well. And you kind of go down that path. Right. A complicated question. But I think there's something to say, like, let's get clear around what your what your goals are. Let's get clear about how I can help. Let's get clear that in the end, your life, you get to make these decisions And if you make decisions that are contrary to our contract, our agreement, the way we work together, there are consequences to this relationship as part of that. Have you found that there are any ways of helping someone become more curious? So this book is all about curiosity. Stay curious. And and so when I think of the situation I'm describing, it's like you want to help you know, not writing to coaches, you're wanting to help someone become more curious about their own behavior so that they're willing to engage in a conversation where you might be able to be helpful. So I understand how you and I can be curious. How do we help someone else who's not particularly curious in the moment, but who may be working against their own best interest become curious? I'm not I'm not lobbing easy questions at you because that would be very interesting. Which is why this is a really great conversation because I'm like that's that's a great insight, which is because there's a connection to here and this is me spitballing, Peter. I don't have an easy answer. Yeah, let's talk about it. But you know, there's something around mindfulness, Mm -hmm. which is as much as curiosity, it's just awareness of the pattern that's happening. You know, if the I'm sure plenty of people have are aware of the kind of the science of habit building, you know, uh, Charles Duhigg's book, The Power of Habit, James Clear's book that built on that, the Atomic Habits, uh, Near Isles books around habit building as well. So there's this thing that when we are in habits that are not helpful for us, the three, the three parts of the habit cycle are the trigger, the behavior, and then the reward. Mm-hmm. And the trigger just happens when we're like, it just happens. And before we know it, we're doing that behavior that we wish we weren't doing. You know, it's like suddenly you you find yourself in the kitchen holding a pint of ice cream and eating it. You're like, oh, how did I get here? Because I was so determined not to eat ice cream. Right. And actually, to to use an example that's very specific to your book, the trigger for this particular habit of giving advice that we're trying to disrupt is the trigger that says someone comes and asks you for advice or asks you for help. Perfect. Right. So it's a little bit of a different situation than we're giving, but but it's like yeah. that's the the trigger is ask for advice. The response is I'm going to give advice, and then we both yeah. walk away happy in the moment because I've given advice. He asked for advice. He wanted he or she wanted the advice. I yeah. fulfilled that. I feel great about myself. They feel great about leaving, 
And the only problem with that whole setup is that my job as a manager and a leader is to build an independently capable team. And what I've actually done is built dependence and incapability in in my team. And and possibly you've given not very good advice to solve the thing that isn't actually the real problem that needs to be solved. Right. So So there's also a kind of lower level failure as well, potentially as well. So that might be the trigger. So, so now I want to come back to this question of like, how do we get people to be curious? So you're saying the trigger, uh, I think it's it's really hard in the moment because in the moment, you know, the habit is an unconscious action. So it's, you're, you're literally not curious because you're just reacting and responding to the to, to the the stimulus that's out there so part of what this is about and this is why this shift to staying curious longer for many of us isn't just an easy thing it isn't just a, oh i hadn't thought of that right i'll just start doing that now it's actually starting to go this is a new habit that i'm looking to build so you kind of need to do the work beforehand to say all right i'm starting to notice those places where i default to um giving advice more often. Oh, it's in that team meeting where Peter always asks me that annoying question. Or it's that moment where somebody comes into my office and goes, help, it's burning. And you're like, okay, I always jump in there. Right. Or it's when the kid comes up, my kid comes up to me and goes this, and I'm like, oh, here's what I always do. And it's about recognizing those moments and starting to go, let me build an alternative plan in that space. You know, there's that Nobody quite knows where this quote comes from, but it's like you don't rise to the challenge, you sink to the level of your training. Right. And there's a way that in this moment, if you're looking to shift to become more curious, there's a way that you won't rise to the challenge because your habits will take over. You'll shift to the level of your training. So if you so it's about going, right, when Peter comes to me, my training is uh, when Peter goes, How do I do this? My new training is go, Peter, good question. I've got an answer, I'll tell you. But before I tell you my thoughts, what's your first idea? Right. And now it's you're building that new habit. Right. Right. That's a, that's a really interesting question. I love that idea, that recognition that when somebody's doing something dysfunctional, you want to help build their awareness and their curiosity as to what's going on so they can notice it and they go, wait, what's happening here? What am I doing? I need to shift that. Yeah. And I like your point that it's important to have that conversation when they're not in the triggered state. Right. So and the, the time when you want to have that conversation is when they're in the triggered state, because right. that's when you notice it and that's when you want to subvert it. And yeah. so what you have to do is disrupt your own reaction of trying to help them in the precise moment that they most need it and they most are, they are most unable to hear it. So unless, that's un- like the dynamic. Potentially you've had a conversation earlier, earlier where right. you're like, Hey, if you catch, if you see me jumping in to give advice or drinking the wine or eating the chocolate mousse, here's what I want you to do. Kind of shake me a bit and go, what are you doing? <laughs> we had this conversation. Do, I'm just pointing out that you're doing the thing that you said you didn't want to do. Well, and you know what? Maybe for the sake of, of supporting their curiosity in that moment, rather than shaking them and saying, this is what you said you didn't want to do. Yeah. Assuming you've had the conversation earlier in a non-triggered state, in the triggered state, what you can do is say, hey, like you're doing that thing you didn't want to do and I'm not telling you not to do it, but I, I, you know, it could be useful to be really curious about what's going on for you right now. Like this is something you said you didn't want to do. So, you know, enjoy it, do whatever you want to do, but notice why are you doing it? What's it doing for you? What does it feel like? What, you know, like what's going on for you that you're now doing this thing you didn't want to do? 
Yeah, that's smart. That's really nice. And then you don't have to necessarily get into it with them, but you've begun to create what you've you've talked about mindfulness, and you 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 talk about these three things: empathy, mindfulness, and humility in the book. Yeah. And I love all four of these definitions of future you. You know, like of how you, <laughs> and and so it's that's a big part of the mindfulness of like just check about what's happening for you right yeah. now. Right. Part of one of the shifts that is the kind of deeper shift that we're talking about in the book is this shift away from trying to rescue people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's exhausting. It's impossible. And so many of us, for good reasons, with you know, big hearts, are trying to save the person, fix the person, think it's our job to save people from themselves. What we can be is we can be a light. You know, we can be a guide. We can be a, um, you know, a chiming bell to go, hey, I noticed this. We talked about it. Do you want to notice it as well? Do you want to make some other choices? Do you want to just be aware of what's going on for you right now? Because that awareness and that ongoing awareness is what helps people start shifting their behavior. You know, it's a little bit like if you're trying to catch a tiger, don't chase the tiger, just put out some milk. And, you know, and it's like create a situation which makes it more likely for the person to come to you for advice. And when they come to you for advice, then you can use that line that you've talked about, that bait and switch. I actually have some ideas, but would love to hear your ideas first. (laughs) And then you're off and running. That's great. You you talk about a number of things that we do to get in the way, that gets in the way of our own – ability to to sort of coach effectively or trip us up when yeah. we're trying to uncover real problems. And I've often said about coaching that the heart where most coaches go, and this is to, to your point in the book, where a lot of coaches immediately go is to advice, to solving the problem that yeah. the person says they have. But to me, the magic of coaching and the most important move that we can make as coaches is to help people, and I'm curious if you agree with this, to help people understand a different problem than the one they think they have. Meaning I go into coaching with a basic assumption that people are really smart. And so for the most part, they're as smart as me and they figured out how to solve the problem in any way that I could help them solve the problem. So the real, most of them are are smarter than you. Smarter. They are. It's true. Absolutely. (laughs) Smarter, like by far, by far smarter than me. A hundred percent. Right. And, and, uh, and so the question isn't have they thought of my solution the question is can we think about this problem differently so that a different set of solutions appear it's fundamental and foundational and i am we're just going to be violently agreeing with each other now because (laughs) one of the things that i think is most powerful and you know that's why there's a, a whole chunk of the book about this is The assumption I have is the first challenge that they come up with is never the real challenge. It's not the only challenge, and it's almost never the real challenge. And the ability to stay curious enough just to interrogate the challenge shifts the challenge. And, you know, the question I talk about in the book as being this foundational piece, and it's kind of taking the question that I talked about in the Coaching Habit book, which is what's the real challenge here for you, and then kind of unpacking that and going deeper into that. But when you go, what's the real challenge here for you? Mm-hmm. And what else is a challenge? And what else is a challenge? So what's the real challenge here for you? Nine times out of ten, the challenge shifts. It becomes more personal. It becomes more profound. It becomes more articulated and crisper. You know, I literally just ran a webinar for a big uh, big company this morning. 
and some senior leader was willing to step up and be coached in front of the 3,000 people that were on the webinar, which is amazing. I mean, it's already a great act of leadership doing that. And he started off, and I'm like, okay, so what's the real challenge here for you? And he's like, ah, you know, I've got this great work piece. I'm in charge of these all these legacy systems. He was a CIO as part of the company. And I've got this vision for for the future and, and the technology we're, we're moving towards. So it's classic kind of uh, IT challenge. But we went through this process of me just asking the same question, what's the real challenge here for you? And it shifted, and by the end it was, I need to have the courage and the vulnerability to build some of the relationships I need to get buy-in to my plans for this future state. Hmm. Solving the same problem, but an entirely different expression of what the real challenge was. Much more personal, much more about his leadership edge. And in th it just took three minutes. In three minutes, we were able just to move the focus of the problem. So if you're a coach or you're somebody who is more coach-like in the way that you lead your teams and influence people around you, their willingness to say, look, my job is not to provide the solution. My job is to help make sure that we're tackling the real challenge. That is a profound and powerful shift in the way that you show up and lead. And actually what I'm doing here, Peter, is just taking much longer to explain the same point that you made in a much clearer, crisper way. No, no, you said it beautifully. And uh, and and part of the you know like part part of when I look at the methodology and I think about this you know your what you call the fourth question the foundation question which is what do you want yeah right I and I'm curious what you think about this I like to I like to ask that question when I when I start my coaching every coaching uh, not only big project but every coaching session starts yeah. with what I call what is your big arrow, meaning what is it that we're going after here? What is yeah. the most important thing for us to achieve over the next 12 months? And that focuses the challenge already to say, you know, it, it's we're not just open up to a conversation about what do you want to talk about today. It's what do you want to talk about the day today in the context of what you're trying to achieve over the next 12 months and what challenges or opportunities are you facing in moving towards that? So it's already starting to guide the conversation in a way that puts them in the right uh, yeah. sort of focus area. And I'm curious what you think of that. Well, here's where I go with it. In the end, strategy is the willingness to make a tough choice about the key thing to focus upon. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the conversations people have around strategy is look at the vast array of tactics we're trying to pull off. And it makes people more scattered, more distracted, more overwhelmed. And you look at the people who are ruthlessly good at being strategic, and it means that they're ruthlessly good at saying no to stuff so they can say yes to the one or two big things that really matter. And what I hear in your process is you say to them, every conversation we have, I elevate to a strategic conversation because I remind you about the one big thing, the one big thing that is your strategic driver for the next 12 months. And all conversations now fit within that context, and they will rise to the challenge of that. And what that does is, if you want to use the uh, Stephen Covey model around what's important and what's urgent, what you're saying to people is, I get that every time we show up and have a conversation, there's a bunch of urgent happening, that fire's burning, people screaming metaphorically or literally, 
but I'm going to remind you at the start of every single conversation what's important. And then we're going to have a conversation about what can we talk about now that is got a line of sight to what matters. And let's make that conversation powerful and strategic. And this is what leadership is. It's this ability to rise above the urgent and the noisy and the fiery and the shiny and go, I'm still remembering what matters here. Right. That's great. That's great. And it puts all of these and then and then you're off and running to, you know, don't give advice about it. Ask a bunch of questions, understand the problem, right. understand the problem differently than they're understanding the exactly. problem and then help and, them find and, this. And potentially give advice about it because as we started on this conversation, like there is a place for advice and there may be the thing where you go, you know what? I do have a piece of insight for you around this. I've got a person I want you to meet. I've got an article that I've read. I've got a, a practice that I want you to do. There's a place for it, but you've done the work to create curiosity, to find the real challenge. And now there you have a choice to go, is the right thing to give advice or is the right thing to do something differently? Right. We've been speaking with Michael Bungay-Stanier. His book is The Advice Trap. Be humble, stay curious, and change the way you lead forever. Like all of our conversations, it's a joy to speak with you, Michael. And Thanks, I so appreciate you being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you. Peter, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, I love our conversations as well. It makes me want to fly down to New York and just hang out a little bit more often than we do. So I should do that. Please yeah. do. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.